Uh, welcome to episode 54 of the Canadian Prepper Podcast, recorded February 9th, 2020. My name is Ian, and I live on Vancouver Island. I'm an outdoor enthusiast, sport shooter, reloader, and my farmer's designated handyman. Hello from Canada's East Coast. Uh, my name is Hughes from Nova Scotia. I'm a Canadian Armed Forces veteran, volunteer firefighter and station chief, and a volunteer search and rescue technician as well as a prepper. Um, I've been preaching the and living the prepper lifestyle to varying degrees for the last six years or so. This was born out of necessity to ensure the short-term survival of my family, which includes three young children. And my name is Tyler. I'm broadcasting from my five-acre homestead here in northwestern Wisconsin, USA. Since purchasing my first home, I've been working to turn my property into a self-sufficient homestead with an emphasis on preparedness. And if you want to help support the show and keep the Canadian Prepper podcast on the air, um, go check out rapidsurvival.com. You can pick up a Canadian Prepper podcast t-shirt there. Uh, All proceeds help keep the lights on in the backup generator field. And if you're enjoying the show, please take a few minutes to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Canadian Prepper Podcast and submit a review on iTunes. Also, we want your feedback, good or bad, or uh, just if there's a topic you want us to cover, you can email us at feedback at prepperpodcast.ca. I searched high and low for a good dad joke on this one, but uh, I used the intoxicating last time. So this one, I'm going to say we have some high-proof content for you in this episode. We're going to start off with some preparedness and related news articles. Next, we're going to be letting you know how we've improved our preparedness since our last episode. Then we're going to get into the main topic for the episode, which is hard alcohol production. So for the news, um, I just decided we should probably stop talking about Corona just for like five minutes. <laughs> and, um, so I actually, very interesting thing. So in Thailand, an active duty soldier went on a shooting spree and he ended up holding up in a mall and taking a bunch of people hostages, uh, which doesn't do much for the argument where they say only the military and police should have guns because it turns out there's crazies in the military too. So I... Uh, Anyway, I threw the news article for that one, uh, CTV news article, in the show notes. It's just worth the read and the fact that uh, I think you have to do more screening of the person versus the actual tool. Um, and uh, pursuant to Ian's comment that we're not going to be talking about the coronavirus, <laughs> I did find I did find a very interesting article. Um, it's been all over the internet. Um, apparently, um, the the what they're saying is that the real figures for the coronavirus may have been leaked, uh, which shows the uh, I believe the cases on this. This was like from four days ago. Uh, the number of infected in China might be as high as one hundred fifty thousand, with twenty four thousand dead. Um, so apparently, this was uh, published on state run media of some sort for a few minutes. It was taken down, but it was enough to be captured and spread around the internet. Um, so are these numbers factual or not? Don't know, but it's kind of intriguing that uh, it came from a um, state-run source. Um, so yeah, just an interesting article around the uh, corona epidemic that's happening right now. Well, because of course, state-run media, how can you trust it to begin with? But they probably just hit the wrong wrong tab for <laughs> the numbers they want, really want to release or the, what number, the, the massage numbers, you know? Yeah. yeah. But... Uh, yeah, who knows? I'm sure when it all shakes out, I think they're going to have some egg on their face regarding how they handled it and how they controlled information and everything else because it seems to be quite the clampdown going on there right now for information. So Yeah. Yeah, I uh, also had a quick article uh, regarding the coronavirus. We've got uh, another case here in the States, and it's actually in my home state here of Wisconsin. Um, so this will be the 12th confirmed case in the United States. Um just kind of hits home for me a little bit. I guess uh, I'm not personally too worried yet, but uh, it, it is a little concerning that it's getting closer. Um, it does seem that uh, their containment efforts are helping, at least within the states here. It seems like they're being cautious and taking the correct actions, but uh, it doesn't take much for it to spread. So a little bit alarming. Um, 
Uh, getting away from the coronavirus, uh, if you've paid attention to the news in the states here at all this week, it has been a busy one for American politics. Uh, I don't want to get too much into it, but I did want to talk a little bit. Um, you either had a great week or a terrible week, depending on which side of the political spectrum you lie. Um, Monday, we had the Iowa caucus. So um, that's basically where uh, it's kind of the first step in determining who is going to be the front runner for the Democratic Party. And uh, a whole lot of drama with that. Uh, they, they were kind of putting into effect a, a new voting app and it just went haywire uh, and it was days before they got results. So that was kind of a debacle. Um, Tuesday, we had President Trump deliver a State of the Union address. Um, again, lots of drama. We had the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi ripping up the <laughs> ripping up the, the script afterwards there. Um, so again, just just kind of shows the, the political divide within the states here. And then finally on Wednesday, we had the impeachment trial uh, finally come to an end with President Trump's acquittal. Um, and uh, again, just kind of kind of wanted to bring this up because uh, I guess what I see here in the states is uh, the country divided right down the middle with half half against or you know half on the left, half on the right. And uh, I'm kind of seeing what I saw in 2016 and what really kind of propelled me into preparedness and, and just kind of the animosity between the two parties. And, and I expect as a, as the 2020 election approaches here in November, we're going to see a lot of the same. So. Yeah. It made for a lot of really good memes with the, uh, the ripping of the paper there. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly, it certainly did. Uh, like I said, uh, I, I tend to lean towards the right quite a bit more. So uh I had a good week here in the States. Uh, well, I mean, just like Bill Clinton, I mean, uh, yeah, if you have, uh, you know, one house is going to vote for it and one house is going to vote against it, mm -hmm. you know how it's going to end, but it's just the rest of it is just political posturing in between. Like, exactly. And that's all it's been for, for months here, uh, really years, ever since President Trump's been in office, it's been just, uh, yeah, yeah, kind of everyone putting on a fake show, trying to look better than the other party, but really when it gets down to the nitty gritty, they're all kind of, it's cutthroat politics at the end of the day, so variations on a theme yeah it's uh we don't have soap operas nowadays we just have that i guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's definitely just as dramatic it seems yeah all right so we want to uh, what we've done lately for preps uh so lately we've supplemented our edc gear with some super se straps uh you can check them out at super straps.com for heavy duty multi-purpose handkerchiefs and some really awesome paracord straps the morale patch kits are a quick and simple way to keep gear with you all the time actually they're morale pitch uh morale patch kits they actually have like a hollow rear end to them. So yeah, when you put the morale patch on your hat or whatever, you can actually put like cash or whatever behind it as well. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, kind of neat. So I've actually got some stuff in the mail as well coming my way. So I'm going to uh, see what I think of them after that. Cool. So what have we done lately for preps? Uh, so for me, I started on the bi-yearly, bi sorry, um, small engine maintenance, uh, things like generators, tractors, mowers, ATV, and all that kind of stuff. It's just a, a good time of year when I'm not using a lot of this equipment um, to tear it apart, see what parts I need, um, do the oil change, filter change, all that kind of stuff. So I do this twice a year, typically in winter and then once in the summertime as well. Um, I've also increased my long-term food storage by several weeks, um, and I've also set up a dedicated budget, which will build up over time, and then I'll use that for large uh, food stock purchases. Um, I'm staying on DEFCON 4 level right now since the coronavirus hasn't made its way east from Toronto yet. Um, so yeah, that's where I'm at for last week. All right. Uh, yeah, I only had limited days at home last week. Uh, ended up having to bug out early and go back to work because of my uh, transportation fell apart. So I, uh, anyways, had to run back to work uh, earlier than I would have liked, which cut short the prep time. Um, but still been busy basically since just before I left and just since I got back, busy repairing the uh, flood damage from the big uh, deluges we had. Um, continued while I was gone, I guess, another two feet of rain 
something like that, about 60 centimeters wow. over, the, over the course of a week. It was just crazy. Um, anyway, so it's just mud and rocks everywhere now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I talked about the last gas cans I had uh, left last week, uh, keeping up with the DEFCON, DEFCON 4 idea, uh, just keeping a tighter watch on the news. Uh, actually, I also learned something interesting, too. I was... Uh, about three episodes ago, I mentioned I'd got that, that steel pin tumbler for the brass, and I was uh, washing all my brass. I couldn't figure out why after about 28 loads of it, it was starting to get greasier and greasier, and I was shaking my head. I was asking the guys for their recipes for what they're throwing in with the, the brass and stuff. So I, I learned that using Dollar Store brand Dawn soap does not work nearly as well as grocery <laughs> store brand. So, uh, yeah, I threw, I threw out the Dollar Store stuff, started using the grocery store stuff, and now also my brass tumbler became self-cleaning again. Everything's coming out bright and shiny again, and for the sake of like what boiled down to twenty-five cents worth of cost difference per <laughs> bottle, um, one works, one doesn't. So lesson learned about being too cheap, I guess, right? <laughs> and so I'm uh, retumbling all my brass. I can't. Fun. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah for, for me, I uh, so the past few weeks, um, the wife's finally getting the name change documents all sorted out. So I've been putting together uh, kind of an importance document binder. I've got a little leather portfolio, and now I've got. Uh, social security cards, marriage license, copies of all, all of our driver's license and credit cards and everything. I've compiled that uh, within the binder. And then now the next step, uh, we'll be digitizing that as well and making flash drive copies of all that. Um, had a range day last weekend. Uh, we had about two weeks, no sunshine here in Wisconsin. And uh, we finally got some beautiful weather last weekend. We had a one day of 45 degrees and sunny. So I uh, got out with the nine millimeters and had some range time. Um, Purchased the Survival Medicine Handbook, so uh, looking forward to that showing up in the mail and start reading that. Um, Went ahead and stocked up on some cold meds, immune boosters, and a few other pandemic supplies just in case uh, things get a little little more aggressive than they are now. Um, One thing I did was I purchased a two-person kayak uh, to use this upcoming summer. We live just about a mile from the river, uh, so I want to get in to learn how to fish in the river. And uh, my wife also got a metal detector. Uh, for Christmas birthday present, uh, I bought that for her. So she's uh, pretty excited to to do some metal detecting in the river there. Um, final thing I did was stocked up on some 22 long rifle. Uh, local Fleet Farm is remodeling, so they've been having some pretty good deals on uh, blow clearance uh, specials and stuff, and uh, picked up some 22 for for pretty cheap. So yeah. that's been about it. <clears throat> awesome. Yeah, actually, for the uh, pandemic supplies, it's interesting because I mean, of course, the the typical N95 masks are on like either they're either sold out or they're being jacked up for prices. And, right. you know, same thing with Purell. I don't think you can find that to save your life, but it's interesting, like, you know, Tylenol cold and flu, simply, you know, simple, something like that. Cause there's no cure for a virus, but at least you can manage right. the symptoms and, and keep your airways clean, <laughs> cleaner. Mm-hmm. You think uh, more people would be grabbing that, but nobody's grabbing that at all, which is yep. funny. Yep. Like uh, Costco was just full of, had tons of gloves, tons of Tylenol cold and flu and and safety goggles you can get anywhere like stuff that actually might be more useful than others like it's actually right. kind of funny like how some stuff is available some stuff isn't mm-hmm. what's I funny is um we typically go to a grocery store in town we're about 20 minutes from from here and they were sold out for purell and all that kind of stuff but i have a pretty redneck grocery store like five minutes away and they they still had full shelves of it it's it's yeah. almost like it just the, it had, the people haven't made their way out that far to get this stuff um so it was nice to see that in my local store as opposed to having to drive in town for, for that stuff so mm-hmm. well that's good and nice to support the local store anyway right yeah right awesome um, I was just going to ask you about the uh, the metal detector. Is there like actually does, is there a lot of stuff to be found there? Do you think or 
Uh, we'll find out. I don't know. She watches a lot of YouTube videos uh, and a lot of people pull stuff out of the river. Um, I think what happens is a lot of people floating down the river just on tubes and kayaks and stuff lose their rings and watches and jewelry and whatnot. So that that's a lot of it. As far as historical artifacts, I'm not really sure uh, how much you're going to find around here. You're probably more likely to find an arrow, arrowhead or something like that. Um, yeah. It's interesting because, like, uh, over in England, they just discovered a big cache of coins again, eh? Like, just uh, yeah, and right. a field a field that had been gone over like a hundred times before, and then all of a sudden, just they guess they got lucky. So, yeah, yeah, it just takes one find. So, and I, I guess that's kind of the thrill of it. But uh, I've seen yeah. guys on YouTube that do diving with um, the metal detectors, and typically where they have the most um, luck is near bridges, like bridges yep. that actually go over a river, like people tossing stuff. Um, you know, one guy was like under one bridge, he found like three handguns. Yep. Uh, most of them were, I mean, they were been there for a long time. I mean, he turns them into the cops, obviously. Right. But right, right. it's interesting, you know, in one bridge, like three handguns. All right, guys. Yep. <laughs> well, if you, if you watch the Irishman, it's like, there's, he was talking about how there's like hundreds of handguns off one bridge from him alone. So <laughs> it's actually, he's like, wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's pretty funny. So, uh, I guess we'll move on to the main topic. So yeah. Let's see here. Uh, I got some questions for Hughes, but I was thinking I might just let you talk first and then come back to that if that's okay with you. Yeah, well, I was actually I was going to talk about um, just kind of going through the questions that you had put in the show notes. Um, oh, okay. Kind of gave me like a good order to do it. Um, yeah, so I'll probably get started on it. Um, so why do I make it? Um, I guess for me, it's a recreation. Um, I mean, I drink the stuff. Uh, it's a hobby. It's an art. Um, I started off making wine, then beer, then cider, and now uh, spirits. I really love the process. I love um, being really kind of OCD with it and, and trying to refine the process, make it better and so on. But then it comes down to um, the fact that I am making really good quality product relative to what I'm doing um, for a really low price. And we'll get into the price um, a little bit later, um, as well as um, I do put some away for long-term storage that can be used for like antiseptic, for bartering, for stove fuel and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of the reasons why I make it. Um, I know other people that make it, they just drink it all. Um, to me, um, given the amount that I can make in a relatively short amount of time, like we're talking about three gallons in two weeks, um, I can't drink that amount of alcohol. <laughs> so, so challenge accepted. Challenge accepted, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure some people could, but yeah, I know. Um, I keep some for consumption, and then I put some away as well for long-term mm -hmm. storage. Yeah. Um, legalities of it. So at least in Canada, I know Tyler did some research for the U.S. as well, uh, and it seems to be quite similar. But so, so, so to be clear, it's illegal um, to make moonshine without a license from the federal government here in Canada. So you need actually like it's actually called like a still license or like a distilling uh, light license, and it applies to most of the province here, most of the prop provinces here. So the act of making a mash, which is uh, typically in its purest form, is basically water, sugar, yeast. That's that's a mash um, is illegal unless you have a permit to own that still. Now it's legal. Um, it's legal to, to make that mash. So it's illegal, it's, it's legal to make like alcohol water, but owning a still for the purpose of distilling alcohol is the part that's illegal. So if you buy a still to use it to distill water, uh, to distill essential oils and all that kind of stuff, that's perfectly fine. If you're caught distilling alcohol, um, with that still, that's when it becomes a problem. Um, so again, it's legal to make a mash that is basically alcohol water. Uh, it's a very low percentage. It's going to taste like crap, but that's legal. And then it's legal to own moonshine, which is the, the final product of what we're talking about. But what's illegal, again, is, is owning a water distiller and then putting 
alcohol through it. That's the illegal part of it. Um, to my knowledge, nobody in Canada has been charged under this act uh, for distilling for personal cons consumption. I think the government is more interested in people that distill in very large volumes, like let's say 300 gallons at a time or more. Um, but yeah, so that's 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 what I found. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's that they're not interested in people that do small amounts. It's just that nobody that I could find has been charged under the act uh, for very small amounts, I guess. Well, I guess too, just to clarify for the listeners, so dist distillation basically just makes a stronger alcohol by volume, right? So you're just right. taking the mash and, and concentrating the alcohol. And then we can still buy a still for water, like in essential oils, like you said, right? Correct. And if you go in a store uh, in Canada and the U.S., there's only a few companies that kind of make um, stills for water dist distillation. So Kenmore used to make one, so Sears used, 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 used to sell it. There's mm -hmm. another company called Steel Spirits out of New Zealand. They make a, a pot still and a column still. Again, they market it as water distilling equipment. What you do with it is your own thing, right? But it's being marketed and sold as a water distilling equipment. And they have to do that because if you go into a brewery supply store or a spirit making store and they were selling stills, that would be illegal. But because they're selling it and marketing it as a water still, that's perfectly legal, legal to have. And you can buy these things on Amazon as well. So. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just quick cover the laws within the United States here, and and like pretty much everything, you have federal, you know, laws on the federal level, and then also on the state level. So first, you need to check within your state. Um, and I, I'm not going to cover any of these because they vary drastically within each state. Some states prohibit uh, alcohol distillation completely. Other states are much more relaxed on the topic. So begin by by searching your state first and go from there. Um, on a federal level, though, it is not illegal to own a still. So you can legally own a still so long as you're using it for decoration, distilling water or essential oils, um, kind of like Hughes had said. Um, if you do want to do alcohol with it, you can obtain a federal distilled spirits permit or a federal fuel alcohol permit. And uh, the distilled spirits permit is, uh, you know, home distiller is not going to get that permit. That's for somebody big like Jack Daniels or whoever making um, basically alcohol for the stores or to sell on the shelves. Um, so you can obtain the fuel alcohol permit. And uh, through the reading that I did on the forums, it seems like pretty much everybody is uh, accepted. Nobody's really denied this permit and nobody's ever really checked up on or followed up on from what I read in the forums. Um, just to be advised that you are technically you're supposed to be making uh, alcohol for fuel, not consumption. But that is how you kind of legally make alcohol within the states here. I think I saw something in the show notes there. Is it true that Jack Daniels is actually in a dry county? Uh, yeah, yeah, it is true. Yep. Yeah. You can't you can't buy or taste anything outside. I think there's like a, a store a couple miles down in like another county. Um, but yeah, it is in a dry county, which is mm -hmm. kind of weird. But yeah, yeah, hypocrisy at its finest. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so describing the process, um, so it's actually, I mean, if you've ever made wine or beer or anything, it's, it's one of the most rawest and easiest, uh, processes. It's basically, so for the, for the folks that are on the, the video here can see it's basically, so this is corn sugar, which is basically also known as dextrose. Um, so you need corn sugar, you need water and you need yeast. Um, now, you know, when they say crap in, crap out, so quality ingredients into your mash, you're going to get a quality product out of your mash. You can use white sugar, um, but it's not going to be as good because there are some impurities in the white sugar, whereas the corn sugar is, is a lot more pure. Um, if you're going to use white sugar, you would use seven pounds of white sugar. I'm sorry, you would use six pounds of white sugar. If you're going to use dextrose or corn sugar, you're going to use seven pounds um, to 21 liters of water. Um, sorry, guys, I don't know what the, uh, how many gallons. I think that's what, seven gallons maybe? No. Uh, no. 3.8 liters per gallon. So Okay. 
Uh, so anyway, so 21 lit- liters of water, um, 7 pounds of corn sugar, and then you would use this yeast here specifically, which can be found pretty much anywhere. So it's made by Still Spirits. It's called Pure Turbo Yeast. Um, and the thing about this yeast is that it used to be called Triple Distilled, and it's a very pure, very uh, refined yeast that has very few impurities. And that's that's important because coming out of the process, you want the least amount of impurities in your mash possible so that you can get the best end result. So what you do is you take your yeast, you take your sugar, and you take your water, you put that into a bucket, make sure that the water is at a certain temperature, so it's got to be at 30 degrees Celsius in order to start. Um, You put your sugar and your yeast in, and then you leave that for seven days. Um, So you're going to have an airlock on your bucket, uh, which we call a primary fermenter. Um, That airlock is going to bubble away pretty pretty feverishly for the the first probably six days or so, then it slows down. Um, And once the air bubbles um, have stopped coming out of the airlock completely, uh, what you would do is you'd take off your lid, stir it up a little bit, like three or four times a day, so that you get all the carbon dioxide out of that um, out of that uh, wash, and then you would clear it up. And the way you clear it is that you've got a again from the same company, Still Spirits. It's called Turbo Clear. So you got part A and you got part B. Uh, you take the part A, you put it into your wash, you stir it up pretty vig- vigorously, you leave it in for about an hour, and then you come back and you put part B. Uh, and once you put part B in, you kind of just fold it in gently, and then within 24 hours, you'll actually get a really, really clear spirit. Um, and if I can, I'll probably, if it's okay, I'll just share my screen here, and I'll show you guys some pictures of what it looks like. Um, can you guys see the screen there? Yeah, yep. there it is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me go to the actual... Awesome picture here one second um so this is what the this here is what the wash looks like after seven days so basically the fermentation process has ended now i'm stirring it up i'm getting all the carbon dioxide out of the wash um and i do this three or four four times a day once it's done i put in the clearing agent and this is what i get after 24 hours so all of that carbon um which i don't know if you guys can still see on the screen here yep. this actually had to be added at the beginning the sugar, yeast, uh, the carbon black, which is basically just like a carbon which traps the, the impurities. Um, and then once you clear it with the turbo clear, it takes all that carbon and all these impurities and everything and then shoves them right down to the bottom of the bucket. Okay. Um, next one. Can you guys still see the screen? Yeah. There we go. Yeah, there we go. Um, so once you've done this, you basically rack this liquid to another bucket, and this is what it looks like. It's a nice, clear li- liquid. And at this point, you're, you're looking at about 24 liters um, of alcoholic water. So you're talking about about 16.5% alcohol in this water. Um, and what you've got is basically a, a grain-neutral spirit or something like vodka, but it's a very low alcohol percentage, and there are some impurities in here. So this is the pot still. So this is um, a pot still made by a company called Still Spirits. It's marketed as the air still. And the reason why it's called the pot still is because it's just that. It's just a pot. You put one gallon of um, the wash in it, so that clear li- liquid that you saw in the bucket. You put one gallon or four liters in this machine. You turn it on, and within two hours, you've got 800 milliliters um, of spirit at about 60% ABV, or about 120 proof. 
So fishing. So that replaced yeah. the the complex copper line and all yeah, that. Yeah, I was gonna say what happened <laughs> to the old, old yeah. copper pot and <laughs> the big line. And- so let me explain the difference. Is that the the pot steel? You basically have again just this bucket. You put the one gallon of wash in it at sixteen and a half percent. Two hours later, you've got you know um, eight hundred mils at sixty percent. So what this is is that it brings the temperature of the the, the liquid to between sixty eight to seventy two degrees Celsius, which is a boiling point of alcohol. And then there's basically a con- condenser at the very top that basically once the uh, once the evaporated alcohol goes through the condenser, it basically reforms into a li- liquid and then it drops into the uh, measuring cup. Now, this is a, a, a pot still. A column still um, is different in that you can actually take all 21 liters of your uh, wash, put it into the machine uh, or, or the or the uh, column still, um, and then this will continuously run and, and do all 21 liters of the product at once. Versus this here, I basically have to do it four liters at a time. I have to clean it out, put four liters in, run it again for two hours. So I can do 21 liters in one day, but it's going to be a very extended day. Versus a column still, you can do it all at once. The only thing is that you basically have to sit there and babysit the machine because you have to have a continuous flow of cool water coming into the machine in order to cool uh, the evaporated alcohol and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's a much more, the column still is much more expensive. It's about two and a half to three times the price. Um, it's a lot more finicky. Uh, you have to babysit the machine as it, as it basically runs. Um, so this is a very easy way to get in the game. Uh, you basically, again, you just put your gallon in, you turn it on, you wait two hours, and you've got eight, eight, 800 mils of 60% spirit. And yeah, again, this is going to be like a vodka, right? Right, so, right. I can't believe okay. how small that, that little uh, machine is. That, uh, you know, when you hear still, you ex- expect kind of some big uh, elaborate setup that's going to take up half the basement. But uh, that looked right. like it was about the size of a coffee maker. It is. And I mean, there's uh, the company Still Spirits makes a machine called the, the, uh, the T500, which is way bigger. But again, it can accommodate 21 liters at a time versus okay. the four liters that what this machine can make. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can get some really fancy handmade copper stills that are going to run you in the thousands of dollars, doll, doll, right? But right. Yeah. Actually, well, just so the old style stills, I mean, when you had the, you had the guys in coveralls and the guy was named Clem and, and Jay yeah, yeah. Would, <laughs> would get together and do their thing. Didn't they have a problem with uh, like the heads and tails, like the first ounce and the last ounce or something being poisonous? Right, and that comes from not the type of still you're using, but from the type of mash that you that 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 that, that you're basically uh, doing. So if you're using something like pure corn sugar and you're using this turbo yeast, which is very very pure, um, the methyl alcohol is not actually an, an issue. So the product that you can make with this is going to have about one tenth the amount of methyl alcohol that commercial spirits will have that you can buy in a store. But if you're going to use this to um, distill something that's made like a sour mash, like from corn or rye or some or some Thing, because it's made from a fruit or a grain or like a vegetable, um, there is methyl alcohol in that. And in that case, when it comes to uh, the distilling process, what we call the foreshot or the heads, this is what you'd want to basically capture and discard at the very beginning. So if you think about um, as the still runs, um, the first liquid that comes out is called the foreshots or the heads. You would capture that and just discard it because the methyl alcohol is the first thing that's going to be distilled out of the spirit. Um, so you would get that and you would just discard it. In this case, because I'm using corn sugar uh, and I'm using the turbo yeast, um, you don't have to do that. It's only if you're going to be making your own like sour sour mash with like uh, cracked corn or with rye or something like that. Yeah, because I have some friends that use like, uh, they'd actually home make a mash, whether it be with potatoes or actually horse feed, like corn, oats, and barley uh-huh. called cob. Yeah. And they would actually make, because it's got like a, a high molasses content and everything else in it. 
And uh, yeah, they were they were talking about that, and I was kind of curious as to how that that came about. But, yeah. So, and then when you're talking about a column still, it can distill to a much, much, much higher alcohol. You're talking about 95% ABV, um, mm-hmm. or something like you could buy commercially called like like Everclear, right? Uh, which is about 109.90 proof. So when you're talking about commercial stills or the ones that you see on like the show Moonshine Shine Shiners, you're talking about mm-hmm. guys that are just distilling to 95% ABV. So I mean, this is very very highly flammable liquid and you also have an open flame right mm-hmm. so you're talking about a much higher danger level of this stuff exploding um, because you're distilling to 95% versus like 60% right mm-hmm. so um, and I mean this is a commercially made machine uh, made to distill wa- water but again it's mostly used for distilling spirits right so mm-hmm. Um, once you've made your um, once you've made your your alcohol at sixty percent, uh, what you would do is you collect all of it. Uh, I ended up with seven point five liters of it, um, and you can buy this two part bucket system. So you've got a bucket on top, a bucket on the bottom, and you've got a charcoal filter that goes in between the two of them. Um, what you would do is you take that charcoal filter, you soak in hot water for about half an hour or so until all the bubbles come out. You would put in the bottom of the bucket. Uh, you put your seven and a half liters of sixty uh, percent off. So so sorry, you first you have to take that 60% alcohol and you have to cut it with distilled water to about 40% because charcoal cannot filter anything higher than 50% ABV. Um, so you would take that, that 60% uh, ABV liquid that you have, you cut it with distilled water down to about 40%, which is what you would have for commercial spirits like vodka. Uh, you put it into the bucket system uh, and it takes about 12 hours or so to filter through. Um, and the filter in this case is good for about 25 liters. So because I'm only doing about seven and a half liters, I actually ran it through three times to triple filter it. Uh, and through each filtration, it became a lot smoother. Um, like I tried the liquid um, at 40% before I filtered it. It was, it, I wouldn't say it was harsh, but there was some harshness there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I filtered it the three times. And then by the third time, I had a really nice uh, product at that point. So it's like a Berkey for booze. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Um, and it's just, that's just it. It's just a little charcoal filter. costs about five bucks to, re- to replace. It's good for, for one run. Um, and I mean, if you wanted to use this for water, I mean, you, you very well could if, mm-hmm. if you had to, right? So um, there's a charcoal filter in action. Um, so you can see it's kind of coming through the pores there. Um, and this is kind of the product that you end up with. Um, so I'm just going to switch over. So... Um, out of the last run, I ended up with four different products. Um, the one on the left is basically Moonshine or Kentucky White Whiskey. Um, the second one is Navy Rum, and then you have two types of bourbon. Um, and then if you want to see how pure your product is, you basically put on a spoon, you put an open flame to it, and if you've got a nice blue flame, uh, you basically at that point have a very pure product because the impurities would burn like a yellow and then like an orange type color. Huh. And so, uh, actually, well, just since we're talking about those those four types there, uh, how do you flavor it afterwards? Like you've got the the, the straight alcohol, and then you have to take it one step right. further, right? So let me stop sharing my screen. I'll show you guys. So there's two ways to flavor it. I mean, there's many ways to flavor it. So if you were to make a a sour mash, so instead of making um, a wash like I did with just basically sugar, uh, yeast, and water. If you made something with like corn or rye, then you're basically starting with that base of like for like for like a whiskey or a bourbon or for for whatever you want. But the way I'm making it, you basically end up with a grain neutral spirit like a vodka, and then you can either use this. Um, so this is basically wood chips. I don't know if you guys can see on the camera. There we yeah. go. So wood chips, and what these are are basically 
chips, uh, wood chips from a genuine American bourbon barrel that contained bourbon for a minimum of four to eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, so you take that and you put it into your spirits um, and you wait about two weeks or so and it's basically going to draw all of that essence and flavor and notes out of those wood chips. And that's one way to do it. Um, the other way is they have, it's kind of like an essential oil. So this one here is for the bourbon. Um, so I'll just open it up and show you. It's just basically a little liquid flavoring packet um, and think about it like an essential oil. So they've taken um, um, like what goes into making bourbon, like some of the oak uh, and vin- vanilla and all that kind of stuff. Um, and they've basically distilled that into like an essential oil or like a syrup almost. Um, and then you basically take one of these and you add it to about 1.125 liters of your spirit. Um, and you get what you see, um, what, what I was showing you there is something like this. So you would get like the bourbon here. Very nice. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I love bourbon. I drink all types of bur- 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 bourbon. It's kind of like my go-to drink. So when I first taste this, when I first tasted this, it does taste like bourbon, but you're not going to compare it to like a Knob Creek or Woodford Reserve or anything like that. Um, I mean, you can say, say you can sip it. It does taste like bourbon, but again, it's not a, a high, you know, top shelf type sipping bourbon. You mixing you mix this stuff in a drink though, and it's just amazing. It's, mm-hmm. it's really, really good stuff. Well, after the first drink, really, probably wouldn't Doesn't notice. Matter. <laughs> so actually, so, uh, have yeah. you ever tried aging any of this to see if it gets better over time, or? So I haven't, um, and the reason why is because I've read that when it comes to uh, flavoring it with this stuff here, so the the, the, the liquid, um, aging it won't, won't do anything at all. Um, but when you age it with the wood chips, um, they'll only be able to age the spirit about, uh, so sorry, you'll only be able to extract the flavor out, out of the wood chips for about two weeks or so. And then if you wanted to leave it longer, in speaking to the company that makes these things, they say it's not going to hurt it. You will develop more flavor over time, but you're going to get diminishing returns where uh, whether you age of three months or three years it's going to taste the same right so after the two weeks you're really kind of not getting a lot more flavor out of that out of those wood wood chips at that point right so okay any concerns with shelf life and stuff especially after you flavor it like that or no, so in looking through forms of people that have made similar product with the similar uh, ingredients, um, some people have let it age for three or four years. Um, it's fine. And the manufacturer also says that if you keep it at 40 ABV, uh, which is what commercial spirits are kept at, this stuff will basically last years. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's not going to go bad, right? right. Um, if you wanted to, you can put the wood chips in like a cheesecloth you put into your spirit. You could leave, leave it there for six months, a year, or two years. And again, it's not going to get any better, but it's not... It's it's not going to go bad either. So, okay. Yeah. Um, and then this was just the, what they call moonshine or the Kentucky white whiskey. Um, so this is a very grain neutral spirit. I tasted it. It doesn't have a lot of flavor, but again, if you just wanted to uh, mix it with drinks, it, it's great. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's actually not bad. And when you think about the price, um, I'm making this stuff for, I'm t- going to talk about Canadian bucks here. So $6.46 for a one liter of the product. Um, so no, if anyone wants to do the math on that, but basically a typical bottle um, of like Knob Creek or Woodsford's Reserve or Maymaker's Mark is going to come in at about, uh, it's going to be 750 mils and it's going to cost you at least in Canada about 40, 40 to 50 bucks, right? And I'm making 750 mils for about $4.68. Wow. Canadian. So if you translate that to US, you're probably talking about I don't know, $3.50 for a mm-hmm. 750 milliliter uh, bottle equivalent. Now, this 500 milliliter mason jar, I think, what what is it, 16 ounces? Well, that's a pint. Oh, and, pint uh, yeah. yeah, and 
Seven fifty mil is uh, twenty six ounce. Right. So this five hundred mil bottle, um, it's actually the bottle is two dollars and ten cents, and the alcohol in it is like three bucks. <laughs> so I mean, the bottle almost cost me as much as the booze. Right. So, you're doing yeah. pretty good then. <clears throat> yeah. So when it comes to cost, um, in order to make a twenty-one, or sorry, in order to make a, a twenty-five liter batch of this stuff, um, where you start off, you're talking about forty-eight dollars Canadian in cost, which is about forty dollars US, um, and that gives you about seven and a half liters at forty percent ABV for about forty bucks. So the cost is really, really good, right? Yeah, so, it's definitely there. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. I was just going to ask what that uh, distillery you have there. Um, any sort of fire hazard or heat involved with that or anything to be careful? So there is heat, um, but if you, I mean, I wish I could show you the construction on the inside. I, I don't have it here, but it's basically just a just a stainless steel pot. Like if you would have like a stainless steel kind of um, uh, bowl, I guess, right? Um, so the stainless steel bowl, the element is actually contained within the bottom of the unit. So it's not exposed to the actual liquid, liquid itself. Um, and it's only uh, heating the liquid to between 68 to 72 celsius which again is the boiling point of the of, of alcohol as opposed to water um, and then when you do this um, there's two things you can add to the distiller uh, you don't have to but you can one is called ceramic boiling saddle so what it is is uh, whenever you have a liquid that boils you'll have bubbles that form at the bottom and kind of float their way up to the top so you put these ceramic saddles at the bottom to prevent those bubbles from happening and then the second thing is uh, you have uh, something called distiller's conditioner that you can add to um, to the, the the liquid prior to distillation, what this does is it's like a silicone-based liquid that basically uh, prevents bubbles from forming. Because what you don't want is you don't want this to boil over, create some some bubbles, and then it's going to make make the uh, big mess essentially, right? So um, these are optional things, though. But I do add them. Um, so just adding the ceramic saddles and then the distiller's conditioner into the process makes it so that it's not going to boil uh, boil over anything there. Okay, you mentioned uh, sour mash before. What's the difference between just like making a regular mash or like a sour mash? So the regular mash that I make again is just uh, corn sugar, yeast, water, and then the carbon black, uh, which is going to trap the impurities. Um, if you're going to make a sour mash, you basically would that's when you would add your corn essentially, um, and in doing so, adding something like corn, um, which uh, you know you, you can add grains as well. So if you think about rye and all that kind of stuff, um, if you're going to do that, then there will be methyl alcohol produced, um, which you'll have to capture in the distilling process um, with the first amount of liquid that comes out so the four shots or uh the, the, the heads right so it's just um it's just the, the whatever ingredients you put in it is going to determine the type of of mash that you're starting with um so in this case i'm starting with a very neutral spirit and then i'm flavoring it afterwards where if you were going to make a sour mash you're basically starting with um a, you know a corn-based mash which you're going to be making essentially to bourbon like you can't uh with, with my stuff you can actually flavor flavor it into gin or um any other type of spirit but if you're going to start with like a corn-based mash um, then you're only going to be making bourbon at that point you can't use corn-based mash to make like a gin essentially yeah and uh as far as like uh flavoring packets uh, i saw a couple there but is there like a whole bunch like say if you want to make gin like is there like a juniper extract or something or how does it work exactly yeah so it's the same thing so the the company that makes this still spirits here they, they have about 20 different flavors um a lot of them are going to come down to like you have like northern rye whiskey you have whiskey you have some scotches and all that kind of stuff and of course um it's just going to be a different flavor profile based on where you're trying to mimic the drink to be from right um so whether it's a bourbon or whiskey or a scotch it's all kind of the same thing it just comes down to the region which it was produced 
boost and the type of mash that you started with. Um, and and they do make stuff like gin. And if you look at the gin one, it's basically just like essential oils or like an essential oil syrup of juniper bear, bear, berries and coriander and like the seven or eight other ingredients that go into gin. Um, and again, you would just take your clear lick liquid. So basically 1.125 liters of this stuff. You add the little pouch of gin, you mix it up. Uh, and quite frankly, it tastes like gin. I mean, it's it's it tastes like Bombay Sapphire, like Tanqueray, right? So nice. it's pretty pretty easy to make. And I mean, the flavorings are going to cost you like nine bucks for um, two packets, which is going to be about you know four fifty per one point one two five liters. So adds a little bit of cost um, to the cost that I mentioned earlier. But you're still talking about you know like five bucks per per liter, right? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see why the government wants to get their tax grab out of that for sure. <laughs> so, no, it's, it, it's also it shows you how much tax you're paying on every bottle of booze you're, you're buying right. in the grocery store, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and just to give you guys an idea, like the equipment um, to start off, like the um, the air still here in Canada is two ninety nine. So in the states, I think they're going on Amazon for like two forty nine, um, and then basically just comes down to some basic uh, equipment that if you've ever done uh, wine or beer or anything, you would have this stuff. Um, so you just need like two primary fermenters, which is like the plastic buckets. Make sure you get something that's food grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it comes down to ensure that you have a hydrometer uh, to measure the alcohol level. level. Uh, make sure you have a thermometer to ensure that you're starting off the right temperature. Um, you know, like a big spoon, just just kind of like the basic equipment. Um, and making sure that you sanitize everything really, really well before you get started. Because um, if you don't sanitize this, this stuff, an infection can take place before the mash starts to produce alcohol, which would basically ruin the batch. Um, in this case, it's not like you're making wine, which is like, you know, could be a hundred dollars a kit this is only like you know a few bucks worth worth of sugar um but before the fermentation process starts if there is any type of uh contamination in there it can actually cause the whole batch to be bad if you don't sanitize everything really really well first so so the uh well first of all i guess the senate or the food grade plastic is that's the hdp2 or whatever it's like there's a code to it Correct. Yeah. And if you look at like, I see a lot of people that make this stuff using like Home Depot buckets or and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, these are not food grade buckets. And I mean, you're talking about like maybe one or $2 more for a food grade uh, type bucket. That's not going to leach anything in, into your product, especially where mm-hmm. you're going to be making, um, you know, high levels of alcohol in this stuff. Um, it's right. not like water in it. Like, I don't know how the high level of alcohol could basically leach stuff out of the plastic. Right. Um, so, you know, when you're talking about a food grade five gallon bucket it's like eight bucks versus like six bucks for a five gallon home depot uh bucket right so um just make sure you spend the extra money to get like food food great stuff so and uh, as far as sanitization goes what do you use for that um so i use a uh chlorine based uh sanitizer um and what i will do is all of the equipment i'll basically sanitize it twice and then rinse it three times to ensure that there's no chlorine left um or bleach left within the product itself right um so making sure that the equipment is kept clean is one thing but then sanitizing it again it's i I sanitize twice and then i rinse three three times it's a bit of overkill um but it only takes a few extra minutes and I mean, I've been making spirits and wine and beer and cider for, you know, the better part of a decade, and I've never lost a batch due to, like, an infection. Um, so I'm just going to keep doing my OCD process, which seems to be working. I haven't lost anything yet, um, but that's typically how, how I do it, yeah. Well, there's no kill like overkill, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, like, uh, you see chlorine-based, are you making your own with your, with your uh, bleach solution, or do you actually buy, like, a chlorine-based sanitizer that's kind of pre-made? 
Um, I buy a chlorine-based sanitizer that's pre-made. It's uh, it's actually uh, it's called I think it's called like pure pink, and it's like it's got a pinkish color. So when it hits the water, it turns the water pink. Um, and then as long as you see pink in the bucket or pink in the vessel, you know you've still got some some sanitizer in there. Um, so it's it's great to make sure that you clean all of that that sanitizer out because the chlorine could uh, kill the yeast, which would basically ruin the batch as well, right? Um, so just making sure that you uh, rinse it three times to make sure that you're getting all of the bleach out of there. Um, a lot of people I know though do make their own bleach um, use using like pool shock, um, uh, but I mean for the cost of like five bucks for like a pound of stuff, it's not it's not that big of a deal. So that's awesome. That's a lot of info, man. Yeah, and just wanted to mention like uh, if you look at a column still as well, like um, the same company that makes the pot still uh, makes a column still, and the difference the main difference with that as well is that you can distill to a much higher level of alcohol. So you're talking like ninety five percent or one hundred and ninety proof, um, and then if you wanted to filter that through charcoal, you still would have to cut it down to forty percent or anything below fifty percent in order to filter it through uh, charcoal. Because if not, um, the viscosity of the liquid is such that it's just going to pass right through the charcoal and not have the ability to get filtered at that point. So, yes. I got a quick question about the time commitment. It doesn't sound like it's a whole lot of hands-on. seems like kind of a lot of background process, a few minutes to get something going, and then you're walking away for a few days or... Yeah, that's right. So if you're talking about getting the process started, I mean, you take your bucket, you sanitize it, you put 21 lead liters of uh, water in it, you put your seven pounds of sugar, put your yeast, you put your carbon, you stir it up, you put the lid on it, wait seven days. Uh, once the seven days are done and your fermentation is, is done because you're not seeing any more action in the airlock, um, you you basically stir it up like four times a day or like three, three or four times in a day. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're seeing bubbles coming from the bottom of the um, bucket, then you know you still have some carbon dioxide trapped in there. Once you, once you've done that, I mean that takes like maybe two or three minutes, three, three, three or four times a day, mm-hmm. um, and then it's down to the clarifying process, which you know you add your part A, your part B. That takes about five minutes each, um, and then you, you wait the twenty four hours, and then at that point you're ready to start this distilling. Um, and the hands on process for distilling, you're talking about you know couple minutes to fill the machine turn it on it's two hours it's going to work on its own you come back you clean everything up and then you start over again and you do this about seven times in order to process like a 21 or sorry 24 liter batch um so time commit wise it's i mean probably a whole i would say two hours of work from start to finish yeah oh it's not that much yeah So, and cleaning out the distiller afterwards after each batch, like when you're uh, going from original mash to uh, the first distillation, there, how do you clean those out as well? Same idea, just a sanitizer. Yeah, so I basically uh, no, so I just take a um, um, like a mesh, like a steel mesh, so that I can basically dump the liquid out into a sink and capture the ceramic saddles because you can reuse those over and over again. Um, so I dump that uh, that liquid out into a sink. I capture the ceramic saddles. I clean them off with cold uh, water, and then just with warm water and dish soap, I clean the inside of the this distiller, uh, rinse it out a few times, and then once it's clean, I can basically re-add my ceramic saddles, uh, add another four liters of the wash at the um, distiller's uh, conditioner and then plug and play the machine and then wait two hours and you've got another 800 mils of uh, product at that point. So, 
Wow. Nice. Yeah. Just a lot simpler than I thought it would be. But, uh, of course, you're, you're not using the old style copper still either with all the other. Right. right. Anyway, I mean, what I was thinking about getting into it is it was a pretty daunting um, thing because of the fact that they don't spill it out quite as well as wine. Because if you look in Canada and U.S., making wine and beer and cider and all that kind of stuff is perfectly legal. Mm-hmm. But in order to make this stuff, there's a step which is not legal. So they don't spill it out for you exactly as they would with wine and all that kind of stuff. So um, you have to be a little bit resourceful. You have to go online. You have to go on YouTube um, and find how people are making this stuff. And I actually found a video that I can link in the show notes of somebody who is using all these products from the company called Steel Spirits to go from point A to finish. Um, and I followed exactly that. And within you know a week and a half, I had amazing spirits. Wow. Really cheap price, right? Nice. Yeah. Cool. Uh, anybody anything else? No. I think that's it. Oh, it's awesome, man. That's a lot of Yeah, it's very so, uh very inspiring. That makes me want to go out and try it, that's for sure. <clears throat> yeah, and I mean after this one batch, um, you know, I'm gonna be in Toronto next week, but then I am gonna come back and start another one. And there's a number of other spirits that I want to try. Like there's there's like the Northern Rye Whiskey, there's a few other ones that, that I like to try. So um, and really, it's um, you know you're only making 1.125 liters of the stuff um, using the fla- the idea flavorings, right? So even if you get something that you don't really like, just right. mix it in a drink, drink it anyway, and just just don't buy it again, right? It's mm-hmm. not it's not that big of a deal. Yep. Um, whereas with like wine and beer and spirits, you're making you know um, you know four gallons of the stuff at a time. So if it sucks, then the whole batch sucks, right? Right. Whereas um, this, you're basically the way that I'm making it is you're making a very neutral spirit that doesn't taste like anything. And then at that point, you can start to flavor it um, however you wish. Or if you want to leave it like straight moonshine, uh, which is just going to get you drunk for really cheap, then you can do that as well. So, And when you store it, I mean, you're going to store it as a gray neutral spirit because you, you're not going to put this on a wound, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to put this stuff um, as like an antiseptic or cooking fuel and all that kind of stuff. When right. I put a flame to anything that I've added flavorings to, um, there was some coloration other than blue. Okay, so just uh, when you... Uh, What's that, Ian? Or you just use a regular uh, ceiling, like a jar lid? Yep, I just use, um, yep, just a regular ceiling lid on it. Yep. All right. So. Cool. Well, I guess that brings us to our podcast challenge. So uh, I guess if it interests anybody that's uh, been watching this far, try a batch of homebrew. Uh, we want to see the results. So I, I would recommend going the, the way of Hughes, probably, and just sticking with the pre-made kits versus making your own mash. But hey, you know... <laughs> Love to see any sort of uh, results that people get by giving it a try. Mm-hmm. I think it's definitely a way to go, at least at first. Um, now that I've got the bug, I mean, I'm thinking about buying like the the uh, DAT 500 still because one, um, you know, you can make this stuff a lot quicker, and two, it's going to be a lot of higher ABV and all that kind of stuff. Um, and if you're going to be making stuff like sour mash and whatnot, you definitely want to call them still over a pot still. So I think this is a great place to start. It's definitely for a home gamer type setup. Um, you know, you are making about seven and a half liters a week, um, which again is quite a bit depending on your consumption, but, um, it's, it's a great way to start. It's a great way to get into it. Um, and really you can just expand from that point on. So, yeah. Cool. So I guess some upcoming events, uh, we've got the podcaster charity shoot coming up hosted by slam fire radio on July 4th in 2020, uh, in Balmoral, New Brunswick which is the Restigouche Gun Club. This year's charity choice is the Rod Harquail Memorial Fund. Uh, you can read a little bit more about that in the show notes if you like. There's a link as well. And uh, tickets will be available soon on Practice Score. So for those not know, uh, Practice Score is like a North American-wide 
I guess, tournament shooting uh, website that helps you register and keep track of your scores and help you helps you register for events and everything else. So uh, just Google practice score, it'll show up. Right. Uh, yeah, we got the annual preppers meet also. It's going to be the second weekend of July in Desboro, Ontario. Uh, and also Emergency Preparedness Week is May 3rd to 9th, um, and TACCOM Canada is uh, September 11th to 13th. Uh, the Canadian Program Podcasters Network will be in attendance at TACCOM 2020. Uh, your favorite podcasters will be on hand throughout the show, so make sure you stop by the booth to meet your friends and pick up some swag. You can also see the details in the, uh, at the ticket link, uh, which is in the show notes there. Yeah, if you use the show notes uh, ticket link there, that actually gives us a bit of a kickback to help offset our cost to get there. So if... Uh, if you're interested in showing up, that'd be a great link to use. All right, shout-outs time. Uh, yeah, I had a quick shout-out. Just wanted to shout-out to Eric. Uh, hooked me up this week with the Canadian Prepper Podcast t-shirt and uh, also gave me an awesome uh, credit card size multi-tool. Um, so I suggest everybody goes out to Rapid Survival. Uh, they've got all your survival prepping essentials. And don't forget to pick up a Canadian Prepper Podcast t-shirt while you're there and help support the show because they are nice t-shirts. <clears throat> oh, look at that. You yeah. it too. Um, cool. I just had a couple quick shout outs. Uh, I can't, uh, for OPSEC, I can't really uh, divulge names, but um, we'll call her Dr. Anonymous uh, for the great feedback on the show, as well as one of my coworkers who's a new listener. He, uh, the, he and she both said they were um, uh, a lot of good information available on the coronavirus episode. So uh, we're getting some positive feedback, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And uh, iTunes reviews. I got one from uh, Jack. Um, actually, this might take a couple minutes for us too, as uh, guys to give him some feedback on this one. He said, uh, "Curious to hear what your take on a get-home scenario is for long-distance commuters. Um, for example, he drives 140 kilometers a day, 70 each way. It can take me as long as two hours to drive home on a day with just a little snow because traffic gets backed up so badly. He's looking for any suggestions on when to leave versus how to cover distance in the case where my car can no longer move forward." I'm looking at the possibility to relocate my family as I just recently had a kid and the community is keeping me from seeing him through the week as I leave before he's awake and he's only up for about an hour after I get home at night. Thanks from Jack. So I guess the first thing for Jack is, well, I guess you got to plan for the worst case scenario, which is probably a walk home in winter. Yeah. Right. Yep. And I'm in a similar scenario. I've got about a 40 mile commute to work. Um, and yeah, this is something I've definitely thought about, uh, you know, EMP scenario something like that, or, or even just, uh, I don't know, really any collapse scenario, scenario or terrorist scenario where the roads are blocked and you can't drive home, that's uh, that's a long ways to hoof it. I guess the first thing is just to have a, a really well put together get home bag uh, within your car. Um, I guess for me, a 40 mile walk means two days and that's assuming no setbacks. So enough food and water and everything for I'd say at least three days. And then uh, the, the appropriate season, you know, attire, clothes, uh, like warm boots, um, all that kind of stuff. Well, I was thinking too, like vehicle-wise, um, you know, ensuring that your vehicle doesn't get below half a tank. So if it means you've got to fuel every two days, um, I mean, that's probably an important thing to do because, um, you know, if you're going to be stuck in traffic for two hours and you're down to, you know, your last gallon of gas or something like that, right? That's uh, that's a great way to get stuck. But um, maybe even carrying extra fuel on hand. Um, mm-hmm. But and then everything that Tyler said as far as having a proper um, get-home bag that is, is seasonally set so that if you're in winter or summer that you've got the right um, things that you can take with with you should, should you have a two-day walk ahead of you, right? So if you have mm-hmm. to get in a vehicle. Well, with an emphasis on foot, foot gear and uh, keeping warm because, I mean, most people when they go to work, they're wearing either dress shoes or something that normally they wouldn't expect to walk, you know, 70 kilometers in. Um, I figured out if you're if you're making about four miles an hour on a on a good pace walk or like maybe five kilometers an hour, 
you're looking at like, yeah, a solid two day walk. And that's assuming you're, you're hoofing it at a good distance each day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, yeah, in order to plan for unexpected, you know, things that come up, I'd plan for a three day walk and then, exactly, yeah. um, yeah, enough food and water for such, or at least the water means to filter water. Cause I mean, between a Silcock key and local water sources, I'm sure you could find enough water to carry, but mm-hmm. or enough water to procure versus carry. And, um, yeah, other than that, I'd say just enough food to get yourself there. Uh, keep in mind keeping warm, uh, you know, having a light. Yeah, and just uh, just a way to uh, make sure that your family knows what your plan is so that if they if you don't show up for a couple of days, then they know what happened. Yeah, yeah and something else I've thought about too, I know you can get uh, like folding bikes or even a scooter would be uh, a lot better than walking it, assuming the roads are plowed, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, depending on where you're working or, or if you've got relatives close to your workplace, maybe you could stage a bike uh, and just leave it right at work. Obviously, you're not going to be biking to and from work on a day-to-day with a 70-mile 70, 70 commute. But uh, if you've got to, you know, pick up a cheap bike off Craigslist for 50 bucks and you just throw that in the back of back of the building or, or wherever you can at work and that's just there in case you were to ever need it someday maybe that's maybe that would be a good alternative for you if uh, if you're really worried about something like that well i had the same scenario too i used to live in uh, barry ontario and I'd, I'd drive down to mississauga for work and that's about 80 kilometers each way and yeah the one thing i really focused on too was the alternate routes for for traffic because uh more than a, more than a couple days with the cottage country traffic and doing a big like c-shape to get back home because uh you know, if in order to avoid the major routes, which get clogged up on the weekends, um, yeah, you're better mm-hmm. off doing the side roads. And a lot of people won't bother. There's just too much work, right? Yep, absolutely. They'd rather just crawl along at two miles an hour. So mm-hmm. same idea with uh, winter versus uh, high traffic. So that's about all I had. Uh, mm-hmm. let's see here. I guess that's about it. So we're going to have to bring the uh, episode 54 of the Canadian Prepper Podcast to an end. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Please take us, uh, please help us out. Take a few minutes and submit a review. It helps other people find us. You can also find us at prepperpodcast.ca and on Facebook. We record these shows live on Facebook and YouTube. If you want an early peek at the shows, please subscribe to the YouTube channel, Canadian Prepper Podcast, and click on the notifications tab. That gives you alerts of when we're going live. Uh, we can also be found on Facebook on our page at Canadian Prepper Podcast, and you can contact us directly on Instagram. Actually, uh, never mind. That sounds... <laughs> Uh, okay is that me yes yep sorry i can be reached at hfxprepper at gmail.com and i also have my own youtube channel just search for hfxprepper on youtube yeah if you got any questions or advice for me uh you can email me at tyler at prepperpodcast.ca all right, you can reach Ian directly by uh, emailing me at theislandretreat at gmail.com. You can also find me on Canadian Patriot Podcast, also available on iTunes and YouTube. There you can find us discussing more government waste, squirreling off on the odd firearms-related banter, and exposing the daily loss of freedoms we're facing. So, since Eric's not here, I'll say his bit as well. Uh, please check out rapidsurvival.com and get him there on live chat while buying some prepper gear. You can also email him at uh, feedback at prepperpodcast.ca while still buying some prepper gear. He's got to plug that company. All right. Uh, so, thanks for joining us. And you can tune in for the next episode where we're going to be talking about personal protective equipment, and uh, such as NBC gear or uh, N versus P masks or anything else. Um, I'm looking for any sort of input on that. If anybody has any questions, we'll be sure to cover it. So until next time, be prepared, stay safe, and keep learning. <laughs>